Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. I continue to be fascinated by um, the exploration of this evolution of Christianity that we are witnessing with a significant drop-off in the influence of what would be considered institutional, especially right-wing participation, even though politically in the United States, the right-wing Christian sect of Christian nationalism is still very strong. It's also, but it's diminishing in its influence because of millennials and Zoomers who are realizing that this isn't for them. Um, And I also think it's important to people, those of us that I still identify as Christians, that we re-examine, that we get outside of our own Jesus bubble, as I call it, and talk to people, especially other Christians that have a, a different perspective. And so I'm joined today by someone that we don't really have a different perspective. We just have very different backgrounds. I'm joined today by uh, Mark Gladman. Mark is a Benedictine monk uh, who lives in Australia, and um, he goes by um, Monk in Docs on Instagram, which I will link to in the show notes. And um, we've been Instagram friends for a while, kind of in the Mutual Admiration Society. Uh, And we're both heretics in another era. Without when well, we didn't we didn't have freedom of speech, we'd probably been arrested for our beliefs, which is kind of cool. <laughs> so, uh, welcome, Mark. Thank you for um, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Justin. It's a pleasure to join you. Yeah. How long have so just some context? How long have you how long have you been a monk? And and kind of un- before that, like what, you mentioned some things to me <laughs> off air that the the order the Benedictine order is a little different than. Jesuits or Franciscans. So how long have you been doing it and what makes it different than other orders? Yeah, so I, I've been involved with the Benedictine community that I'm a part of, the House of Anishinaabe, since 2016. Uh, that's when I became a postulant, then a novice, and then made my simple vows a couple of years ago. Uh, our community is not a traditional Benedictine community in the sense that most Benedictine communities would live uh, in a monastery and all commune together and live together in one space and place and generally not come out of that monastery too often, although the Benedictines are very well known for things like schools and universities. Um, they make great um, beer <laughs> um, and, uh, and other things too. I mean, I think there's one in the States, a Benedictine monastery that makes coffins <laughs> oh. is their uh, thing, uh, which is great. Um, Our community is a little bit different in that our abbot, who is a traditional Benedictine monk, he's founded two communities now, and ours was the second of those, and he's still with us as our abbot. And when he founded our community, he wanted to broaden, I guess, how Benedictine life could be lived. In his head, I guess you could say, he went, well, if St. Benedict wrote the rule of St. Benedict today, what might that look like? Uh, what does it mean to live in community when we have this technology and all that sort of stuff around us? And so he began to explore what that would look like. Um, to use the technical terms, merged two canons of the Episcopal Church, uh, mm-hmm. one about religious communities, one about religious orders, to sort of mesh those together and create an opportunity for people who might be living away from the monastery, uh, who might have already, you know, gone into a what we might do in regular life, you know, maybe uh, got a job somewhere and bought a house, got married, had kids, any, all of the above, but could still follow a vocation, uh, which was still fully Benedictine in terms of our vows, which, by the way, aren't poverty, chastity, and obedience like the Franciscans and some of the other mendicant orders, but it's actually um, 
obedience, stability, and a thing that Benedict called conversatio morum, which is, I guess, a commitment to an ever-going evolution of who you are and a growth in who you are in God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, many of our community are single. A few live at the mother house. The rest are dispersed across the world. Uh, but many of us are married, even those of us who are in full vows, like myself. Um, and we go about living out our Benedictine uh, spirituality in the context of, of where we live, through our families, through our jobs, in our local communities. Um, it's a little bit unusual in that sense, but has been fully embraced by the worldwide Benedictine um, group uh, of you know communities. Our abbots goes to that meeting every single year. And uh, whilst, of course, many of them want to hold to that traditional form of monastic life, they're very excited about the prospect of what that opens up for people to explore what it means to commit yourself to God in that sort of way. Interesting. So this is this is a question that, that comes up to, I didn't send you in advance. So, cause I'm mostly just curious is I'm not a Catholic. Um, I'm, I'm, um, but I'm, you know, I'm fairly uh, knowledgeable of the Catholic church and the various orders and things, but I'm curious um, which of the orders would you say would be most aligned with liberation theology? Wow. Uh, I guess in terms of if you were to say at you know, face value, right. um, probably probably Franciscans. Okay. I would say. Um, but then, you know, uh, Benedictines have traditionally, I mean, uh, one of the things about Benedictine uh, spirituality and, and, and orders is that uh, they are completely independent of church technically mm. uh, and work very hard to ensure that separation from, from bishops, whether it be like we're, I mean, our orders within the context of the Episcopal slash uh, rest of the world Anglican Church of England. Um, but we exist and have existed for a long time um, mm. as simply unknown anomaly over on the edge. Interesting. Um, which which is great in the sense that you know our abbot would say bishops like to do certain things that bishops like to do, yeah. but we have our calling and our charism, and that's where we need to focus and stick yeah. to. Um, so so in that sense, you know, I think there's a lot of freedom within Benedictine spirituality generally to meet the needs of local community. Right. Um, and look, the, the other orders have their own charisms as well, which contribute in their own way. But certainly I think uh, the Franciscans are very known uh, for that um, liberation type of theology, particularly around the context of um, uh, the poor and those on the fringes of society and also yeah. in, in terms of environmental sustainability as well. Um, I guess traditionally Benedictines would have found that difficult because traditionally they are enclosed in a monastery, but the rule goes to great lengths about accepting guests and showing hospitality and treating them as Christ. Uh, if someone right. comes to the monastery hungry or needing shelter or, or work or whatever, the monastery does what it can to support and meet that. Yeah, interesting. Well, thank you for that. That's a good good, good crash course <laughs> in all of that. Um so we're recording this the day after in the United States, the day after the Super Bowl, which ended up being a pretty good game. Sorry to the Eagles. Um, it was See, I'm holding. an Eagles fan, so it was very depressing. Um, it was holding on the play, and the guy that did it admitted it. So, you know. <laughs> that last five minutes. Uh, yeah. 
in the last anyway. five minutes, but that's, you know, I saw something where they use quant, the quant theory, like, which is used for like uh, hedge funds and other, you know, predictability indexes that this was the low, the, the most narrow margin of predictability. It was like 0.003% difference wow. between the teams. Um, and so, you know, it makes sense that it comes down to one or two, you know, plays similar to the Bengals and Chiefs game that came down to, you know, um, Mahomes getting hit out of bounds. So anyway, so speaking of football and Jesus, uh, yesterday, (laughs) the the Super Bowl, there was a group of billionaire evangelicals who did, I think, two ads kind of, I think it was Jesus gets you, Jesus gets everyone. It's interesting because you and I set this topic in advance of that. The first ad I thought was just the the usual, like, uh, Jesus is your buddy, kind of like overly energetic youth pastor, kind of Tim Tebow-like in its enthusiasm, which is fine. I'm not judging. It's just the second one was actually pretty good. It's like, all right. It's like, you know, if you actually live that way in the second ad. So um, I've often said that there's an irony, and I, my background is as a branding guy, a brand strategist, messaging. I've said two things. The greatest brander of all time is Jesus. Nobody had, nobody was better at message and marketing and, 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 and building a grassroots movement and word of mouth. And if he, if he was around today, he would have crushed it on TikTok and um, and, and, and anyway, and the most broken brand in the world is Christianity as far yeah. as um, brands go. And so the topic today is rebranding Jesus. So a small thing, no big deal. Uh, we're just going <laughs> to rebrand Jesus. Uh, and in some ways, I think counter a little bit of the more um, evangelical tone of that particular ad campaign. Um, but we're really not having this conversation to do a tit for tat, like, you know, like, you know, we're not, it's not a debate. We're just offering you and I in this conversation are offering an an alternative third way, if you will, a view of who Jesus is and why that matters now. So the first question for us to answer is what do you think the biggest miss is the biggest misconception that your traditional Christians and traditional non-Christians, because that's the thing too, have about Jesus. Yeah, uh, it was interesting because obviously in Australia, we get the live feed of the game. We don't get your ads. Uh, oh. Although I did see the first two seconds of the Breaking Bad ad and I thought they were going to let it run, but then they cut to the local ads. But uh, I was able to get online this morning and find uh, the ads online at a, an oh. ad uh, website. What was interesting about finding it online, which I wouldn't have done had I watched the game, but it was interesting to see what some other people had written already in articles about these commercials. And, and it, I think I raise that because it does come down to the misconception. Uh, yeah. What you've got out there is a misconception, I think, that Jesus simply came to be a human sacrifice, that right. everything centers around the Easter story, that there is yeah. nothing else, that Jesus died to save your sins and that's it. And there's three places that I think this comes from. Uh, the first one, uh, and I'll work backwards. The first one is the Council of Nicaea, uh, yep. when uh, Constantine said, listen, uh, I'm starting to hear that you all have this idea that God could be many different types of things. 
Um, but I need God to be one thing because yeah. if there's one God, I can say there's one emperor. So yeah. uh, you're talking about, you know, Jesus and God and spirit being related like this. And you're talking about this, get together, sort your stuff out. But at the end result, I don't care what the end result is, as long as it is one God. Hmm. Um, the bishops wanted this as well, partly because they wanted to show that there was some lineage from Judaism, yeah. and partly because the message for them too then is one God, one bishop, mm-hmm. one central bishop in, yeah. in Rome, obviously, at the time. So this is the, the way that that went. And, of course, at the end, Augustine wins out with what we came up with as Trinity, what they came up with as Trinity, <clears throat> and they put yeah. it into a creed. Now, that creed mm-hmm. has become central to what Christianity is. And if you read the creed, in fact, most of the creeds, what you find is they are simply a list of things that we believe. And most of them center on what we believe about God and mm-hmm. what God is, Jesus and what Jesus is, spirit and what spirit is, uh, except for the last little bit in um some of the other creeds, we believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church, acknowledge one baptism, yada, yada, yada. But the, the, the bulk of it is about what we believe about God. And this mm-hmm. has become central because what it immediately gave was um, Constantine the opportunity to go one God, one emperor, but also then mm-hmm. for everybody to say, are you in or out? Here's your test. Mm-hmm. Here's the creed. Nope. You assign yeah. to it. If not, nope. you're out. If so, yeah. you're in. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much, it, it, if it doesn't explain where modern Christianity finds itself in many quarters today, the sorts yes. of quarters that we're talking about, then I don't know what else does, that there is this defining line with us and them, yeah. and that was what Jesus uh, is pretty much about. And so it's about getting over the line. And how do you get over the line? Well, Jesus died for your sins, accept that, believe that, otherwise you can't cross the line Yeah, in, in their book. And the Which, irony, yeah. he, he never said that. <laughs> he never said he died for it. The, the closest yeah. reference maybe is he talked about being the lamb. And so that's kind of juxtaposition or extrapolation that it was related to the, you know, uh, Jewish uh, ritual of, of slaughter. Uh, but yeah. Anyway, continue. You said there were two other, you were working backwards yeah. from the yeah. So you've got the creed. And then if you yeah. go back and look at the text through the lens of the creed, you then yeah. get things like, you know, the good old John 3.16, right? Yes. Hold up the sign, of the, going back to football, uh, yes. hold up the sign of the football game. You know, God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whereas in the context of it's all about Jesus being human sacrifice, then yeah. um, gave, giving your only son means giving as a sacrifice. That believing right. in him means about believing that what he did was for your sacrifice. And then uh, have eternal life has been interpreted as so that when you die, you don't actually die, you live forever. Whereas if you read John 3.16 in the context of the conversation with Nicodemus and in the original languages, um, yeah. none of those things holds water. Uh, particularly right. the eternal life thing, which, and we'll probably get onto this later because it's a huge thing of mine to talk about, um, this whole awakening to the kingdom of God, which is what eternal life is about. That word eternal, aeon, is about quality of life, not about length of life. 
Mm-hmm. And so when we think about it like that, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, um, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life or to, to have eternal life? He's not talking about what do I have to do to have life forever? He's saying, what do I have to do to live my best life now? Yeah, Because that's what they were interested in. And so you have the creed, which then helps us, you know, whether it helps us, makes us see things like John 3.16 in that sort of light, which then if we go back with those two as a lens and look at other things like uh, the third chapter of Genesis, where suddenly now we see what happens in the garden and we read it as this is the problem, Jesus is the sacrificial solution. Yes. And so the starting point then for, you know, a lot of theology becomes original sin, that you are born corrupted somehow. Right. Whereas I don't believe that that's Genesis 3 tells me there's a Genesis 2 and a Genesis 1. And if you go back to the start of the story, the start of the story, this God makes this creation, including humans, and says it is good. And it is very good. And so we aren't tainted by anything at all. We are born good. We are born uh, the way that we're supposed to be born. We live in a world where stuff's gone askew and we get exposed to that and that's where that nature comes out of. But the idea that we're born faulty and need fixing, uh, I don't think is very healthy theology at all. So there's this beautiful flow-on effect that I think really happened when the church got in bed with the state, which caused the whole story to be shifted. And so, you know, you've got this misconception now that Jesus is simply all about dying for you. That's right. We miss the bulk of the story then, though, this three years, particularly where Jesus walked and talked and shared and loved and healed and ministered and fed uh, and so on and so on and so on. All these people over a three-year period, and yet we focus on one week because we think that's the most important part. Right. Uh, and I, I think because of that, we missed the plot. Yeah, we missed the plot. That's a great way to put it. And, and, and there's a reason for that. I think it's intentional. And I think it goes to um, the, 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 the brand began to crumble when it became about power. It's, now it's been perpetuated through uh, the church state uh, combo, you know, that led to, you know, the slaughter of indigenous people and, and the oppression of you know, you know, justified slavery and all the, you know, church cultures and on and on. We could go on and on about how, how that happened from, from there forward, but it became about power, which is then therefore the, literally the opposite of what Jesus taught. Um, and because power requires structure, power requires uh, dualistic thinking, power requires you to, there to be a right and a wrong. Um, and that's why I say most Christians that don't do some examination are really um, um, Augustinians or Paulinians. And even though they're saying, Paul, you know, this is especially true related to like social issues, they don't realize that, you know, this goes to a larger thing of what, what traditional Christians don't realize is how deeply and heavily edited the book is to prove the things that Constantine wanted to create right. this church state, um, including, and there's, there's good AI evidence that this is true, that Paul's writings were edited later to uh, defeminize Christianity, because yeah. this is a constant, a common thing with all authoritarian cultures. They oppress the women and the artists first. Um, 
I think the biggest misconception of growing up as a fundamentalist Christian, the biggest misconception that I see other traditional Christians have, one is sort of a trivia thing, which is sort of funny, is he probably wasn't a carpenter. He was probably a stonemason. The translation is a little goofy, but he has a bunch of stone-based metaphors, and he doesn't have any carpentry-based metaphors, which would be weird if he was a carpenter. Anyway, I think the other thing that um, traditional Christians miss with Jesus, in addition to, because my answer, because we didn't know what we were each going to answer, was going to be the same as yours, that he died for your sins, is Uh, that um, he had powers, this is the one, that he had powers different than us. I think that's a misconception. Now, he said, we'll do greater works than him. Um, And he said, you know, there was this sort of um, um, holistic, uh, may you be, may you be in them as may, may they be in you as I am in them. And know that kind of, I think I butchered that verse, but John 17. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Is this, um, this, this view that we have essentially the same power from a consciousness standpoint that Jesus had. Um, and I think the other one on the on the non on the traditional non Christians is I think they believe that they often believe and I've had this conversation that Jesus wasn't a real person that it was completely mythological and there's just way too much historical evidence that that's not true. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. Anything else to add to that question before we go on? No, no. I think what we're talking about so far is going to move very interestingly into what we talk about in the next question. So okay. Um, but but I think that it's interesting. You talked about you know dualism and so on. You'll you'll note that when Jesus, oh sorry, when the church gets in bed with the state, the church, which was really f- founded on the teachings of an Eastern rabbi, that's right, gets in bed with Western yes. thinking. Yes, and and that's cool. I mean, if you read the scriptures with a Western mindset, of course you're going to find stuff that isn't actually there. Yeah. Uh, um, and come at it with with uh, lens that people who wrote the thing down yeah. um, didn't actually have on their eyes at the time. Right. We keep forgetting that this is Eastern thinking. This is Eastern teaching. Right. And I think we do much better when we can embrace that Eastern, including some of the Oriental philosophy and understanding yeah. of the way the world works and the way of seeing things. We That's actually what- read scripture better. That's right. As Tiknan, I can't. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's the Tibetan um, Buddhist monk. He uh, Tiknan Han. He has a book that compares the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Buddha, and they're very, yeah. very similar. Which is why I think Jesus was here, maybe as a fully formed conscious person to teach consciousness. That's a yep. thing for another episode. Uh, but it makes a lot more sense of what we know of you know of keeping in mind that. None of the none of the Bible is direct witness. It's all um, it, we don't know when it happened or who who said it, and then what the editing was. Um, it, the way I describe it is because of the power of becoming the church state is that they took the Bible, which was supposed to be a book of clues, and they turned it into a book of laws. And if you have to have a book, <laughs> wow. then you know that changes things. So yeah, so let's 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 zoom forward um, to. Now, like we're going to, you and I are going to, we're going to raise the money and we're going to produce a $100 million ad campaign to reintroduce Jesus. What would you say is his message in contemporary language and context? 
how would you distill that down into, you know, a short um, proclamation? Yeah, before I share that, uh, I need to touch on this a little bit because it's related to this. Like you said earlier, the ads themselves weren't necessarily bad. What's interesting about the response to the ads that I was reading about this morning, so these companies observe social media while the ads Mm -hmm. are playing and afterwards, and then obviously report back to the companies and say, here's what we saw, here's how your ad went. Uh, The second of the two ads uh, rated better than the first ad in terms of interactions. But interestingly, uh, the second ad particularly, but I think also the first one, if I remember right, they had more interactions than any of the other ads, but they were predominantly negative. Mm. And that the negative interactions were centered around a couple of things predominantly. One was the amount of money they would have spent to put that ad on. Yeah. Uh, the second, the message itself seeming to be different to the thing that the evangelical church in the United States seems to be known for and mm-hmm. observed doing every day. Yeah. Um, and and then also uh, issues to do with, you know, collaboration with government and some conspiracy theories about where the money came from. Uh, but those first two are really important because in some ways the ads serve no better than the signs that we see out the front of churches. Mm-hmm. Now, I used to do stand-up and uh, I had a whole set related to signs out the front of churches, which I would do both in the comedy clubs and when I was doing the, the churches and festivals and Christian conferences and stuff like that. I'd get the same amount of laughs in both places because comedy work, well, the comedy works on the fact yeah. that it's true and everybody knows it. So even people going to these churches knew that these signs out the front were like, roll your eyes, that's ridiculous what they say. But in some ways, these two ads are in danger of being really expensive, slightly more visible church signs that people roll their eyes at and go, come on, really? And the reason why is because they're not seeing what they're expressing. Right. So we've got this ad that says, you know, Jesus called us to love our enemies. And yet people watching this, particularly outside of the church, go, so why are you doing what you're doing then? Yeah. Uh, right. a, friend, a guy I follow on um, Instagram said $20 million to remind even evangelicals what they're supposed to be doing already. That's right. Uh, which is a really interesting way of thinking about it. So what, when, I, when I talk about what I'd put in these ads, um, I, I would come from a perspective of, uh, you know, what is Jesus' message? And I'd pitch it at everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. Christian or not, saying this is what we're supposed to be up to and we've failed, all of us, to an nth. I've always said that Jesus' message is probably um, fourfold. One is awake. Open your eyes. Um, When Jesus preached about the kingdom of God, he wasn't preaching about something that's coming. He said it's here, it's now, it's among you, it's within you. Uh, God is here now among you and within you. And it's been here now among you and within you since year dot. So awaken to that, awaken to the reality of God, awaken to the reality of this realm, this way of living, of doing and being is what the kingdom of God means, the kingdom of heaven means. It's God's way of doing and being in the world. I talk about being congruent with the way of the flow that God has put in place. And if God is love, as John mm-hmm. says in First John, then um, you know, the flow is love, right? 
So if, if we're getting congruent with love, um, we are going to see beautiful things happen. And that's the awakening. We're awakening to this world in which the flow is truly about love, love of, and then we get down to the other three things. The first one is love God. And how do we love God? Well, we go with the flow of what's about and allow that love to work through us. And then it flows into loving our neighbor as yourself, not as much as yourself, as uh, Cynthia Bourgeois reminds us, um, right. but it's a, as yourself. In other words, that love that person because they are you. John 17, as you were talking about before, I and them, you and me, they and each other, all one, this unity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are all part of this, this oneness somehow. Um, mm-hmm. So when I love my neighbor, I'm actually loving them because they are me and I'm loving them because they are also God, which is why we see in the Bible things like, you know, um, look after the stranger because you could be, you know, entertaining God themselves. Well, you are. Uh, for the very essence that the divine dwells in them. Uh, so you've got this awaken to the reality and in response to that, love God, love others. And then John 10, 10, you will find life to the full. And that's really what Jesus' core message was. I want you to have a full and abundant life. To do mm-hmm. that, let me show you what that looks like. It looks like allowing love to flow through you towards yourself, towards others, uh, and towards God. And, you know, I have conversations with people about this all the time and you talk about it like this and it's really not rocket science. And I used to say, but it is hard. And I thought about that the other day in um, a chat I was doing with someone and I thought, you know what, it's actually not hard. I'm just pig-headed. <laughs> um, it's actually not hard to show love to someone. It's actually not hard to be patient with someone. It's actually not hard to show care and concern for someone, to as the old proverb goes, to walk a mile in someone else's moccasins. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not hard to do that. Mm-hmm. I just don't because I'm selfish and I'm holding myself back from allowing love to truly flow through me. If I let that go, perhaps I will find myself in a place where I am truly awake and then, then can allow that love to work through me and we'll see things happen. So if we were going to create an ad, I'd probably want to create it around something like that, but I'd probably want to really stress that we all screw up at this, yeah. but that ultimately God, however we understand God, th- that's okay. Yeah, not, It's not okay in terms of, ah, we'll forget about it. It's okay in the sense that, oh, you messed up. That's cool. Listen, you got another chance today to, mm-hmm. to try and do it again, to be mm-hmm. the answer to the prayers that you're praying, to uh, be the answer to someone else's prayers. Uh, and if you mess it up today, well, you've got tomorrow to have another go at it as well. And as long as you're drawing breath, that should be the goal. Yeah. Uh, so if, if we stress that, I guess that's probably where I'd want to communicate that message out of. Yeah. You know, my, my thought on that is I'm reverse engineering from some negative enumeration. So like the U.S. Constitution is negative enumeration. The Ten Commandments is negative enumeration. We don't see many negative enumeration models. Jesus didn't really do it. But if you if you look through, he basically preached against three things. He spoke against three things. One was abuse of power. Um, the second was um, waste of wasting resources. And the third was hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. So if we reverse engineer from that and say, well, what does the opposite of that look like? 
is um, the message to me is we are here to co-create with our own soul, with whatever you want to call God or whatever, um, and with each other. We are here to co-create an abundant life. Um, We are here to have our soul be able to experience humanity through us, like the Song of Solomons is about, kind of this kind of spiritual eroticism, if you will. Um, We are here to integrate. This is the second part of that message, I think. We are here to integrate the masculine and the feminine. Is that when you can integrate that, which is the yin and yang of Eastern teaching, when you can integrate that, you become a creative force. If you're a creative force, you you're you're not hypocritical because you can't create meaningful things and be a hypocrite at the same time. You cannot abuse power because you don't care about power when you're a creative force. And if you're creating, you're not wasting. You're experimenting. You're failing to your point at sometimes, and sometimes what you're trying to create doesn't work. I think that's the message. We are here to co-create a meaningful and abundant life. A short version of that is we are here to make art. Yeah, um, which is why I think all mystics—not all arts artists are mystics, but all all mystics are artists. You know, in that in that in that sense, and. The interesting thing to me is that if you want to do that, you take your 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 idea and what I said is you don't need a church to do that. You need community, but you don't need a governing body. You don't need um, a moral legislative body, whether that be the Inquisition or the uh, you know this U.S. Supreme Court. Um, oh, that's a judicial body, but you know what I mean. And you don't need um, to to be a consumer. Um, You don't need to just consume unconsciously, which means that none of the, none of what we would call traditional power structures are even all that necessary for enlightenment or awakening or eternal life or whatever you want to, whatever someone wants to call it is it's not going to happen because you go to church. It's not going to happen because you don't go to church. It's going to happen because you go inward and you question everything, and then you realize you have inside of you the same exact power that created the universe. We have the same exact power. We have the same ability to make something out of nothing. Absolutely. Um, that no other creature on earth has. So, you know, it says that we're made in the image of God. I think that means we're just here to create too. So that's that's my take. Yeah. No, I, and I think, you, again, you see that right from the very beginning. You know, you've got this uh, God who calls the sea to work with this God in creating the things that are in the ocean. Right. Um, he said, you know, this God says, let the sea bring forth, not I'm going to bring forth through the sea, but let the sea bring forth. When this God creates the land animals in the story, this God says, let the land, let the earth bring forth. Right. And so right. this God, even with the natural elements is in all about cooperation and creation and then makes these first people and says, I want you to look after the garden and I want you to steward it. I want you to care for it. And I want you to make it abundant. That's co-creation. That's, that's working in participation together in this thing that's happening in the world to the point where I've often said and got in trouble for saying, uh, (laughs) talking about being a heretic, uh, 
but I think that there are people out there who would identify, not identify as Christian, whether that be of themselves or by Christians saying they're not Christian. And, yeah. uh, but these people are still actively participating in the bringing about of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, that they are actively yeah. participating in that by their acts of love and generosity and mercy and hospitality and all the other things. Uh, we simply, by the fact that that we're breathing, have the indwelling of the divine in all of us. And so all of us have the capacity for that divine to work through us, um, regardless of what our creed may be. Uh, In fact, sorry, man, I was going to say, it's cool that you brought up Taoism before, yin and yang, uh, because I've, I've done a lot of work on that in the last 18 months. And the um, the idea of seeing Christian faith through an understanding of the wholeness of things um, as Taoism looks at them. I know a lot of people think it's a dualistic philosophy. It's not. It's, it's very holistic. Uh, it understands right. two parts, but it recognizes that if one part didn't exist, the other wouldn't exist either. You need the both. And when you yeah. start to look through, we're talking about before, Eastern lens, you see things in a whole new perspective. Sorry, I interrupted you there. No, no, I interrupted you. It's a bad ADHD thing. Uh, <laughs> and I, I think that this goes to another back, looping back to misconception, misunderstanding is that like Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, like Christ was his last name. <laughs> you know, Christ, Christ is the energy that we all have access to. We all have Christ yes. energy. And if you get into uh, cosmic Christianity or conscious Christianity, there's plenty of other, you know, resources that people can get into um but that's why he was able to call us the a friend or a brother or a sister because we all have the same dna spiritually um and and so and i think if if that's the case then you know you go again you go back to the fallacy and how damning it is to do what i call believe in what i call piece of shit doctrine that you're a piece of shit, and that's why you need Jesus. <laughs> yep. I wrote an essay about that a couple of weeks ago. The fallacy of that, and that how abusive that is. In that, if we're here, if we have the, if we already have this this force of energy in us, to be told that we don't is evil. Yes, I'm going to call it. It's evil to do that. It's evil to dehumanize and diminish people. And I see this especially with people of color, LGBTQ people. Uh, people that are, are women and that have uh, been traditionally oppressed, murdered, uh, marginalized by institutional Christianity, which is an, not just the actions of oppression, but the verbalization to sit in a pew, to sit on a bench, to sit in a chair in a church and be told you're a piece of shit every Sunday is there's going to be a great reckoning for that, in my opinion. Um, oh, Yeah. So well, you think about what Jesus said. The gravest sin yeah. is to the the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? Which I think most of us would understand as calling something that is of God that it's not of God. That's right. Which is exactly what you just described. That's exactly right. Yes, that's like yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so the last question is kind of a it's kind of a funny question, but I'm I'm serious about it because we're talking about Jesus the brand and um, you brand to, to differentiate. Uh, yeah. That's the whole point of branding is to differentiate and to dip, you have to differentiate because you have competition. Uh, 
So who do you think is, in modern life, Jesus' biggest competition? Probably ourselves. <laughs> we are. Yeah. Uh, and, and I love the story of the golden calf on this in Exodus, mm-hmm. when Moses comes down the mountain with the commandments and everybody has pooled in their resources to fashion this golden calf. And it's interesting that Aaron says to the people, let us make um, an idol to Jehovah, to Yahweh. Yeah. So they haven't made this idol and said, this is Cyrus the bull. This is our alternative God. What they have literally done is said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is um, Yahweh. This is, uh, and we're going to imagine this God who's brought us out of Egypt as being a bull, a cut or a calf or whatever, a cow, whatever it was. Um, and so we, I think humanity has this beautiful propensity to shape God into who we want God to be. And I think this is really, really visible when we read some of the parables. So one of my favorite parables when I was working with students to give students, and I used to do a, a unit on how to read the Bible well, and mm-hmm. I would give them the parable of um, the workers in the vineyard mm-hmm. and say, go away and interpret this. And, of mm-hmm. course, most of the students, uh, this was in a, a high school, a, a, a Christian high school at Anglican uh Episcopal um, bent and uh, students would come back with this is unfair this is completely unfair you, you can't have people going in and working for an hour and a half and they're getting paid the same as someone who worked for eight hours this is obscene and mm. my point is exactly that's what grace is yeah. grace is letting your son who has uh basically spat on your grave before you're even dead come home yeah grace is uh, all these i i talk about obscene grace and the audacity of grace mm-hmm. um i think it was um rich mullins wrote a song based on uh, the writing of brennan manning that talked oh, yeah. about um the the reckless love of god yeah uh, which I think is a nice, beautiful image. And right. so we've created, though, this God and in, in, by default this Jesus who wants to make me rich, who wants to oppress the poor and tell them that it's their fault that they're poor, that wants to uh, lock up people for crimes forever and just let them rot there uh, because they deserve it. Um, mm-hmm. who, who want people who don't jump that line we were talking about earlier to rot in an eternal hell yeah. forever. Um, where on earth does this come from? Because it's not the God that I read about in the Bible. To be fair, it is the God I did read about once in the Bible, yeah. uh, growing up evangelical and then Pentecostal before I had a deconstruction and then reconstruction of my faith. Um, yeah. That is how I understood and read God. Yeah, for sure. But boy, when you step back and you have a really good look at what this is all about, I realize that I'm the problem. And as um, yeah. a spiritual director who I quote a lot, particularly in my posts on Instagram, Patrick Oliver, who lives uh, just a couple of hours from me here in, in Queensland in Brisbane, 
um, look him up, uh, patrickoliver.net.au, I think it is. But if you Google Patrick okay. Oliver, it will come up. But Patrick uh, wrote a whole book on this called Getting Out of the Way. Mm. And the whole book focuses on this whole idea that um, we get in the way of our own um, release and freedom. Uh, if you, uh, I have a podcast where I talked about that a little bit and it, uh, the name of the podcast was, um, uh, what was the name of that, that episode? I can't remember. I think it was episode three or four. Um, okay. But anyway, uh, I'll, I'll yeah. find that at some point. But uh, I talk about a lot of, I used Patrick's work there. Um, he has this yeah. thing about the me and the I that, Oh, we're just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but getting in the way, you know, we're living out of the me, but we have to release into the I, which is in God, um, you know, and, and we need to get out of our own way and let God work in us and through us and be open to that. So I think, yeah, what's the biggest competitor is ourselves and thinking that that is what matters. Um, yes. The thing is when we release ourselves to what God's on about, we realize that that is what matters because we find that thing that we're meant to be living with and for and through. Yeah. And again, you can reverse engineer this is what, so, so, so there's this within an institutional traditional Christianity, especially more politically right is a uh, obsession with identity. I am a Christian. um, And the, what I, again, like I said, I call the Jesus bubble. There's people in the Jesus bubble and people out of the Jesus bubble and the people that are out of the Jesus bubble are not, you know, whatever. And so this obsession with identity, this obsession with behavior or purity culture would fall into that. And this obsession with comparison. So what is that produces identity, um, the judgment, judging behavior and comparison, the ego. The ego mind does that. And when you re- you take it a step further, the biggest competitor is religion. A Christian is, is, is religion into itself. N- not all religion, but the, but, the, but the ego management system that is often religion, that you, the re- my religion tells me who I am, so I don't have to figure it out for myself. It tells me who the bad guy is, so I know who to hate. And it tells yeah. me what I need to do in order to win the prize. And that's an ego management system because all that shit is what the ego wants. The yeah. soul doesn't care about <laughs> any of that stuff. So the, when you the think ego of, management system, I love that. That's so ego, cool. an EMS, ego management system. And, and oh, it's, religion right. isn't the only one. There's, you know, there's other ego management systems, but religion is the one that is most predominantly feeds people that separates them from what Jesus, who Jesus was. Um, and, you know, and I think that, um, the thing that, and it's about risk. I remember and, um, that, that when I, and I've talked about this before in other episodes, I walked out of my last church service in January of 2016. Now I had left spiritually many years prior and I, I went out to the woods and I still do this very frequently on Sundays. I'll go out into the wilderness, out into the woods and I'll just be. Sometimes I pray, sometimes I walk, sometimes I, I journal. Um, um, and I just said to God, if you're real, sustain me spiritually, because I'm not going to have a community. And I've had the most massive growth since that time, the most massive growth and the most transformative and painful and agonizing in many ways changes 
to this place that I am at today where now I know what it's like to not have anything missing. Yeah. The things that I want in life still, I'm not around complacency, but the things that I want in life still, I can co-create wealth, health, yes. service. Yes. I can co-create those things. I'm not waiting for something or someone to do that for me. And I no longer believe that I'm a piece of shit. And uh, that makes me dangerous. You know, and what you dangerous said to, to, to have a sense of enoughism or enough worthiness that yeah. the, the competitors, ego, the ego and the ego management system that is religion would view us as a threat. I yeah. love it. Once you get to that point where you can say what you need to say and do what you need to do right. and not worry about what anyone else is going to think or say, yes. that makes you incredibly dangerous. I agree. Um, it, but boy, the freedom's beautiful. And it makes you a lot like Jesus too, because he didn't care. Well, that's it. And he I'm didn't. not surprised that you're finding that connection in nature. Uh, I think there's something that we've truly lost in the modern world yes. is that, uh, you know, this seeing and experiencing God through the natural world. And, you know, I yeah. I started running barefoot back in 2012. Oh, um, and that was just simply to curtail running injuries. But um, I ended up, spending most of my time barefoot now uh i'm called monk in docks but only because when i have my habit on i happen to wear dr martin's um outside of that Uh i'm usually barefoot because there's this connection this grounding um you know and i love being out bush camping in the middle of nowhere i love that stuff because it connects me to this energy this force that if we believe that like you know god created things uh everything in the universe that the, the energy the force the dynamos of god uh, is flowing through all of things. And yeah. when we connect yeah. ourselves to that, uh, we find some connection there. Yeah, you go back to um, the genocide of indigenous people. And part of the reason is that they, you know, they brought this, the, the, the Europeans brought this message that Jesus was here to save them. And there was this being, this thing, and indigenous people are like, wait a minute, God is in everything. The great spirit is in Wakantanka, I think was the was the Sioux language term for the spirit. Right. And it was in everything. We've missed that now where we think either God, either the spirit or energy doesn't exist. And we're all a bunch of reasonists. You know, we need to see the data. There's that. That's its own episode of the fallacy of reason. And then there's the fallacy of religion that... Um, and that's why I say somewhat snarkily, but true is like both religious people and atheists are going to be shocked to find out that we're God. You know? <laughs> you know? Yes. And so, yeah. Yes. Well, you, as expected, you are fascinating brother. I really <laughs> appreciate your, your eloquence, um, your thoughtfulness. And um, I'm sure we will have many future com- conversations off air, and hopefully we'll get to meet the carbon-based versions of each other at some point in our journey. So that'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. Yeah. Bless-